0: All right, grab your Bibles, please, and turn to back to the book of Jer- Jeremiah. We're continuing our study called Unravel, going through the entire Bible, <clears throat> teaching the Bible in chronological order, the best that we can put all of that together. And last week, we came to the book of Jeremiah. We looked at chapter 1, we'll be in chapter 2 today, in fact, this is such a this is such a rich chapter that um, we're going to be here for the next two Sundays. I just didn't, um, I wasn't able to move through this all in one Sunday. Very powerful chapter. Now what is taking place here, again, I remind you, this is around the time of King, young King Josiah we studied a while back, who was trying to bring some uh, spiritual reform to the nation of Judah. You had Israel up north. Down south was the nation of Judah. They were actually all the people of God. They were all Israelites, but they had had a split and uh, gone their separate ways and formed two nations. And Israel has now already been attacked and uh, most of the people carried off into captivity. God keeps pointing to Israel, telling the people of Judah that they're next unless they repent and God is doing everything he can to call his people in Judah back to himself. And he's sending prophets on the scene. We've looked at many of those prophets already. Jeremiah is one of the prophets that now comes onto the scene. We saw last week uh, the theme that runs through this book, where Jeremiah keeps saying, the word of the Lord came to me. And it's a very important theme through this book. Jeremiah is reminding us, I didn't go out and cook this stuff up. This this is not my idea, the things that I'm saying. The words that I'm speaking are from God. God is the one directing my life. He's the one telling me what to say. And so we see this theme right off the bat in chapter 2, verse 1. He says again, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Now, this is God speaking to his people. I want you to feel the heartache of this. God says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest, and all who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Verse 4, hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, what injustice have your fathers found in me? God is now putting himself on trial. He's opening himself up to the people saying, come on, bring your accusations against me. What have I ever done to harm you? What a statement this is. What injustice have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me, have followed idols, and have become idolaters? Neither did they say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt? Verse 7. I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Now, how has all this come about? In verse 8, if we look at this very carefully, we see one of the causes of the problems, and it all stems from bad leadership. Verse 8, look at this he names four groups here. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? In other words, they weren't inquiring of the Lord. Secondly, those who handled the law did not know me. We see that in colleges all over the country today. Professors, smart, slick professors teaching from the Bible, and yet they don't believe a word of it. They're handling the law, but they don't know him. Thirdly, the rulers also transgressed against me. And fourthly, the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that did not profit. I love to play on words there. Verse 9, Therefore, I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children I will bring charges. Pass beyond the coast of Cyprus and see. Send to Kedar and consider diligently. Now Cyprus was to the west, Kedar was to the east. So God's saying, go east and west as far as you want to go and consider diligently and see if if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be astonished at this, O heavens, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. Now, verse 13, this is the last verse we'll read. This is the the pivotal verse of this entire chapter. This is where we're going to spend two weeks. Verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have dug cisterns for themselves, Broken cisterns that can hold no water. No living organism can survive entirely on its own. Everything, down to the single cell, requires some kind of energy source, some kind of external power in order to stay alive. To grow, to move, to repair itself, and so on. Plants need water and sunshine, humans need water and uh, oxygen and food and sleep and Formula One racing in order to stay alive and healthy and thrive. Uh, Look, even mechanical things, these lights are not self-sustaining. These lights require an external power source in order for them to function. Same thing with this microphone. It requires this battery pack here. Otherwise, it would be nothing but a paperweight. Everything, everything requires some kind of external power source in order to survive. Nothing stands alone without that requirement. This is equally true of our spiritual lives. We need much more than just food to eat and water to drink and rest for our bodies. Our spiritual life also has to be fed. It has to be fueled by something outside of ourselves. And here's the great danger with that. That source can either be something true and right and life-giving or that source can be false and evil and destructive. C.S. Lewis, who wrote Mere Christianity, said this, I quote, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, he was British, and it would not run properly on anything else. God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there, End quote. These verses we read in Jeremiah address a problem with the people of God. The problem is they have gone looking outside of God for their fundamental needs to be met. And God sums it up in verse 13. My people have committed two evils. Now listen, they had committed hundreds of evils. We've seen many of them in our studies. Isn't it interesting that God boils it down to two? Two evils. Number one, They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And number two, they have dug cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, we'll get more into this next Sunday, but cisterns is not a word we use at all. It was simply, they were underground water reservoirs. People would go and dig 15 to 20 feet down into usually into the limestone rock or even just into the dirt <clears throat> and then they would get down and coat it with plaster the best that they could and it was built in such a way where it had a, about a manhole cover size opening generally and then it would usually flare out at the bottom like this underground and they would build channels into this, they would put a rock over the top to keep animals and so on out um, and when it rained, which it rarely did in that part of the world Uh, When it rained, the rain would run down into this underground cistern and they would have uh, an extra supply of water. But we're told now in scripture that in forsaking God as their source, they had turned to other sources, cisterns, the Bible uh, calls it. But it's quick to tell us that these cisterns ended up being broken and holding no water and leaving them empty. And today, I want to take a few minutes to focus quickly on the first of these two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain or the spring of living waters. And next week, we'll look at the second one. What does it mean to forsake God? We hear that, and there's a, there's a real hidden danger in hearing those words. They have forsaken God we're quick, I think, because we're sitting in a church service, we've just sung hymns, we're quick to say, oh, I would never do that. Forsake God? I would never do that. But notice very carefully, it does not say they stopped believing in God. They still very much believed in God. Uh, You could have asked any Israelite, who is your God? And they could have told you, You could have said to them, tell me about the history you've had with your God. And they could have rattled it all off by heart. They hadn't stopped believing in him. But in their heart, they had forsaken him. And the sad thing is, this accusation isn't aimed at non-believers. It's directed to God's people. We could understand if God said, well, the non-believers are forsaken. Maybe we go, oh, of course they have. They're non-believers. God is talking to his people. People who have a history with God. People who have been the recipients of his love, and yet they've drifted from God, and they've forsaken him. This close relationship that these people once had with God is described in the early verses we read uh, God says that the relationship with the Israelites that he had enjoyed was very much like a marriage. Look back at verse 2. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. He says Israel was his bride. Their relationship was a beautiful romance, and God had brought Israel out of slavery, through the wilderness, into the promised land, not just so they could enjoy all the incredible, bountiful benefits and blessings of a land flowing with milk and honey, but God's primary purpose in, in taking them there was, listen, to bring them to himself. He was, I'm not being irreverent, I just don't know how to put this into into terms that make sense to us today, God was, in a sense, preparing his his little love nest for the people that he adored. He had been married to them, and he was preparing the honeymoon, he was getting everything in order, and he said, you know, I'm going to take you to this place that is going to be filled with physical blessings. It's going to blow your mind all the ways that I'm going to pour out my love on you. It's going to be so evident. But that wasn't the point. The point was God wanted to draw these people to himself so that they could enjoy one another forever. Exodus 19, verse 4 and 5, God says, Uh, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be a special treasure to me above all people." God says, I brought you to myself to to be my treasured possession. The land was secondary. The, The abundant crops were secondary. The primary purpose is to draw you close to me for a personal, loving relationship. And the Christian life is described this way in the New Testament. We're brought into a close relationship with him. This is the focal point of uh, our, our uh, interaction with him. 2 Peter 1.3 says his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of, Of him who called us by his own grace and excellence John 17 3 echoes the same thing and this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent now this is much more than just a head knowledge of him this knowledge is personal it is intimate it is experiential and you see here another great hidden danger we can know God without really knowing him at all. I think of the disciple Philip. Jesus said to him at one point, point, this is recorded for us in John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you still do not know me, Philip? Well, of course Philip knew Jesus. He would recognize him on the street. Uh, Philip had been there participating in the ministry of Jesus. He had seen the miracles of Jesus. He had heard the teachings of Jesus. And yet Jesus said to him, do you still not know me, Philip, even after all this? What in the world is he talking about? You still don't know me? We can have a knowledge of God that is not fed by, it's not fueled by an active, living relationship with Him. And when that happens, our head may be full of knowledge about God, but our heart can be miles away from Him. This goes back to the illustration I began with of how no living organism can survive without some kind of external power source. And it's that intimate relationship with God that supplies us with the power we need for our spiritual life not only to survive, but to thrive, to flourish, and to be fruitful. But saying we're in a relationship with God is not enough. Saying we are his bride is not enough Because there are two kinds of togetherness in a relationship, especially in a marriage relationship. First of all, there's a side-by-side togetherness, where you as a couple are, you're moving through life together, you have your plans and your goals and your obligations, and you work through those things together side-by-side. But there's also a face-to-face togetherness. And that's all about enriching each other. It's about feeding each other's hearts. It's exclusive. It's private, just between the two of you. And it gives your marriage a source of life and energy that the side-by-side togetherness can never provide. But the problem is, couples get so busy with jobs and raising children and House repairs and car repairs and bills and all of these things. You know, the, the pressure is on you from sun up to sundown. And before you know it, you have no time for the face to face relationship. You've forsaken that face to face relationship and you've replaced it with a detached, cold business partnership. Well, I can tell you that spells. Eventual disaster for a marriage. As I've told you before, many marriages live on long after they're dead. Same with churches. Many of them live on long after they're dead. This kind of relationship in a marriage spells disaster eventually. But it also spells disaster for our spiritual lives. And that's my main point here. Our focus this morning this is exactly what happened to Israel. Their relationship with God, which was supposed to be a beautiful face-to-face marriage relationship, deteriorated into nothing more than just a business contractual partnership. And we may, we may hear that and think, well, <clears throat> that'll never happen to us. Because after all, I'm sitting in a church service right now. So that scores some points. The problem is, and the reason that we rarely see this danger sneaking up on us, I think about what God said to Cain, you know, watch out, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you, but you must master it. This is always the the case with us going through life. We can be sitting in a beautiful church service just like this, uh, and sin can be crouching at our door, and before you know it, in a moment of uh, letting our guard down, it can pounce and it can strike. The problem is, the reason we don't see this one coming a mile away is because relationships never start out this way. They never start out uh, broken and wounded and um, you know, in a disastrous state. I mean, I've done many weddings and, and, and on the wedding day, uh, the fact is, couples don't want advice. They would never say this, but it's like, hey, Phil, we're good. <laughs> we're good. We're in love, man. And look, to a degree, that's how it should be, right? That's a beautiful thing. But on their wedding day, couples don't need, they don't need advice. They're in love. That's all they know. That's how the Israelites' relationship started out with God. God says, I remember how devoted you were to me. You were my bride. You, you pursued me. But now it's all fizzled out. They loved God on paper. They had the contract. Uh, The the marriage license was signed, and it was put safely in the drawer. But the relationship was dead. I, I I wonder if that may be true for some of us here today. You look back at the beginning of your relationship with God, and you remember the closeness you had with him when you loved him, when you pursued him, but it's not that way anymore. You wonder why church services are so boring. You wonder why when you hear the scriptures read or taught, um, you fall asleep. You wonder why when you sing the songs, they don't stir you at all anymore. It's because somewhere along the way, you have forsaken that sweet, personal, intimate relationship with him. You've done what God said his people have done to him. In verse 32, listen to what he says. Chapter 2, verse 32. Can a virgin or a maiden forget her ornaments or a bride her attire yet my people have forgotten me days without number that's one of the saddest verses in the bible to me imagine a bride getting ready on her wedding day and racing off to the service and forgetting her wedding dress God says, is a bride really going to do that? Is she, she going to forget all about her wedding dress? Not a chance. And yet, my people, they've forgotten me for so long, I've lost count of how many days it's been. They had turned away from that face-to-face relationship that they once shared, and they've replaced it with a cold, formal, side-by-side relationship. But you know what? It gets even worse. Verse 27 they have turned their back to me and not their face. So now it's deteriorated into a back-to-back relationship. Now they're both standing there like this with their arms crossed, back-to-back, dug in their heels and said, well, it's your fault, I'm not moving. And I want to warn you, church, because I love you, listen, it is possible for any one of us to end up in that same place. Again, you go, but Phil, uh, I attend church every week. Um, You know what? That means nothing in the grand scheme of things. Now, I'm not saying stop coming. We are told to meet. This is important. But you don't score points in heaven for this. God's not impressed by your church attendance. He wants your heart. He wants that relationship with you. Did you know that it's, it's possible to function out of a cold obedience to God? I mean, you can, look, I'm not picking on any age group, uh, but, but this is more prevalent, I think, in the teenage years. When teenagers especially have grown up in a Christian home, especially a strict Christian home, those teenagers are smart, men. They learn how to play the game. They learn how to walk the walk. They learn how uh, which mask to wear at which time. And they can fool their pastor, they can fool their parents, they can fool the people at church for a long time. And everybody be convinced, oh, look at little so-and-so, what a model child he is, what a wonderful little Christian fellow he is. Meanwhile, he's simply obeying God out of a cold, distant obedience. Why? Because he loves God? No, because he wants to keep the pastor off his back. He wants to keep his parents off his back. And the minute that he breaks free and goes off to college or whatever, that's when you see, boy, this person is like... I don't even recognize this guy anymore. Where did this come from? This wild creature breaks out. Listen, this pattern happens all the time. Why? Because it's possible for them, and hey, it's possible for us to go through the motions, to have everybody think you've got your spiritual act together and you're really something. Meanwhile, God is weeping. Weeping because he knows he doesn't have your heart. That's exactly how the Pharisees lived. They, above everybody else, could quote the scriptures. They knew what what we would call the Bible. Oh, they knew it. And they lived this rigid lifestyle of obedience. And yet they were the ones for whom Jesus reserved his harshest words. He said, you know me with your head, but your, your hearts are miles away from me. And the deadly fallout of that is that when we forsake him as our source, we will forego what that source gave to us, namely the power, the sustenance that fuels our spiritual life. And we will then be left to try and sustain, or maintain, or somehow try to drive our spiritual life forward, to keep it on life support, as it were, on our own, without his power input. The Israelites forsook God. But that's only half the problem, because what always happens when someone forsakes God is they are then cut off from the source. They are cut off from the fountain of living water. So what does it mean to be without the living water? Well, we're going to dig deep into that next Sunday. But for now, let me just say this. When you forsake the fountain of living water, there is a next step that always happens. You will begin an endless search, trying to find something else to replace that living water with, something that will satisfy your thirst. But I, I just want to go ahead and tell you, to maybe save you some time, it doesn't exist. I won't ask you to, but I bet if I asked for people to raise their hands who've been on that search, convinced they were going to find life and joy and fulfillment apart from that source that only god can provide and you came up empty every time i bet hands would be up all over this auditorium wouldn't they because the fact is unless we're lying to ourselves we've all been on that search all of us have a classic example of this was one of my favorite encounters of jesus in the bible it's when he met with the woman at the well you know, he's, he's sitting there on the well, and this woman comes up to, uh, to draw water from the well, and she comes out at, at noon, which nobody did. You didn't do that in that part of the world. Noon was uh, blazingly hot, and dangerously hot even, and so they would always go and draw water early in the morning or late in the evening when it was cooler. So Jesus, you know, he had, we've talked about this, he, he told his disciples earlier, I must needs go through Samaria. The disciples are like, whoa, hey, we don't go through Samaria. You know, we hate those people. We always go around Samaria. You know that, Jesus. Jesus says, nope, I have an appointment today with a woman at a well. Jesus sits there. The woman comes with no one else around. There's so much that I could um, sort of paint into that. I want to be careful because I don't know all the details, but just from, from history and from other Bible examples, we can put some of the pieces together, but it seems... Based on everything we know, it seems that this woman chose to come out to the well at noon to avoid all the other women, to avoid the gossip and the stares. And, oh, look, there she is. There she is, that adulteress. And so she shows up at the well at noon, and there's Jesus. And Jesus begins a conversation with her and surprises her by saying um, in the conversation, yes, i you in fact have no husband uh the the fact is you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is is not your husband jesus recognized something in her that everybody else she passed every day missed jesus saw that she was thirsty And that the water she was drinking did not satisfy her. I'm not talking about the water she came to draw from the well. I'm talking about the things that she was chasing after in life to try and quench that thirst in her soul. Why was she pursuing all that stuff? Because her soul was thirsty. She was thirsty. And she was trying to quench that thirst through love or romance or marriage or maybe having children, having a family. But every time that water ran out, she'd be thirsty again. And so she'd start out on yet another pointless pursuit. Man, what a broken life she was living. What a broken life. But you know what? When people are thirsty enough, they'll drink from any source. Some of you have been on mission trips to different parts of the world. Maybe you've seen people stooping down and scooping up filthy water from mud puddles or dirty rivers, drinking because they're dying of thirst. We turn faucets on at home and walk away and do something else and forget about it. We are so stinking blessed, you understand? In fact I think we're blessed to the point that it is it's become a curse. That's what I think. When people are thirsty enough they will drink from any source. They'll even drink dirty water if that's all there is because that thirst within them has to be satisfied. It will not go away. You understand? A lifetime of pursuits apart from God will never quench that thirst. I love what Jesus said to her, and I want to wrap it up with this. John chapter 4, starting in verse 13. The tenderness of Jesus is just so touching. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water was he pointing to the well or maybe was he communicating to her this water your life hun? these pursuits you're on whoever drinks of this water will thirst again but whoever drinks of the water that i shall give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Verse 15, then the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst. And he did give her that spiritual water. And in that moment, she reconnected her source. From all those things she had been pursuing, well, let's plug it in here and see if I can get my soul fulfilled. Nope, let's try over here. And in that moment, she she turned her connection, if you will, and plugged it into Jesus, and she was filled with living water, and it transformed her life. It says she left her water pot. I mean, that's like that's important stuff to them. She forgot all about the water she was there for, and she ran back to her town, and she told all the people in the town, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Her life was changed not because she read some book, not because she went to some seminar, not because she tried to pump herself up and find the inner giant within and all of that stuff. No, her life was transformed because she connected her source to the source of life. And for the first time, that thirst was quenched. She was fulfilled and her life was changed. Can I close by asking you, what source are you connected to this morning? Are you connected to him, the only source that can satisfy? Or have you done what the Israelites have done? Oh, you're still a very religious-looking person, and yet you've forsaken him. Someone might ask you, have you forsaken God? What? No, are you kidding? No, look, I'm here. And yet your heart, in your heart you've forsaken him. You're pursuing all kinds of other things, hoping against all hope that you're going to be the first person in the history of the world to find satisfaction somewhere else. Sir, ma'am, Young person, I'm telling you, it's not going to happen. You will not find it anywhere else. You won't find it in money. You won't find it in a career. You won't find it in sex. You won't find it in a relationship. You won't find it in power or status or prestige. You won't find it in cars, although Ferraris come really close. (laughs) You won't find it anywhere else but in him he is the fountain of living water are you connected to him this morning maybe you've never had a relationship with him maybe you're like the woman at the well you've been trying this and trying that and boy you just wonder why life is so empty and why every morning you wake up discouraged and defeated again empty again how is this possible This morning, this very morning, you can call out to him by faith and say, Lord, I I am lost without you. I understand you are the source of life. You're the giver of life, and there's no other power source. There's no other energy source I can connect to that's going to give me the eternal fulfillment that only you can provide. God, I'm a sinner. I'm lost apart from you. Please come into my life and save me right now. Jesus said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can do that right now. Maybe you've had a long relationship with him. Maybe you um, gave your heart to him when you were five or seven or 15 or 20. Oh, you've known him for decades. But as you sit here this morning, God is stirring your heart, maybe for the first time in a long time, and you recognize I'm actually not in love with him anymore. I only have a side-by-side relationship. Why don't you come to him this morning? Why don't you come back to him this morning? You know, the book of Jeremiah is filled with the word return. We'll see that later. Over and over again, God says to his people, return to me. Return to me. Does this sound like an angry, hateful God? He's reaching out to you this morning, saved friend. If you realize that you are no longer in love with him, you don't share that face-to-face, beautiful, pure relationship with him, and there's something in your heart right now that says, boy, I wish I had that back. You can get it back today. He stands waiting for you to return to him. And he will once again fill you with the fountain of life that you so long for. Let's pray. I want to say as uh, as we pray and we sing a couple songs and uh, this will this will all be over, um, that the end of the message is not the end uh, of your opportunity to respond to God. You can call out to him from right where you are. you can you're welcome to come forward and kneel here up front and spend time talking to the Lord. I will be at the back there. Are will be a woman at the back. A few ladies would like to speak to, to another lady. You're welcome to come and talk to me. We are here. We're available to help you in any way that we can. Listen, if you're lost today, if you've never come to Christ, if you've never given your life to him, I implore you, do not leave this place without him. You know what? By God's incredible grace, he has given you another opportunity right now don't waste it. Christian friend, I know what it's like. Your pastor knows what it's like to be saved, but to have a heart that is distant from God. It is misery. It's misery. You don't have to live there if that's where you are today. You don't have to spend another day there. Bring that burden to him. Lay it at his feet. Call upon him and say, Lord, I want to reconnect to you, the only source of life. Come and fill me with your spirit once again. Father, take your word and apply it to our hearts as you see fit. Do a great work in each of us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from Life Point Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him.